Um, Acts chapter 14, let me just say this. So we're picking up where we left off last week. Um, Paul's been in and out of persecution. He's been suffering. Um, he's having a hard time. And so we, we pick up. He, this, this model just sort of continues throughout the book of Acts. Um, now, I want to back up a little bit. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I played sports growing up. That's what my brother and I did. He was two years younger than me, and we just played sports. Uh, we were involved in a lot of teams with a lot of different sports. But as we got older and got into high school, I had a couple of coaches that uh, sort of, uh, they were really gifted in um, inspiring people. And so a good coach often knows what to say and how to say it to motivate his athletes. And so he knows that they need encouragement. He knows that they need to be yelled at. Uh, something needs to be thrown at them, whatever that is, right? Uh, good coaches understand the athletes that are in front of them. And so in high school, uh, I had this coach for a period of about four or five years, and he was incredibly inspirational to the athletes that played on the team. He was a motivational guy, and he would dig deep within his heart and deep within his soul uh, to find the right words to bring us along. So one day, uh, we're, we're not doing too well in the heat of battle. Uh, we come over on the sideline, and uh, I think everybody had an excuse for everything. And so I looked at my coach, and I remember he had blue eyes. I remember looking at his blue eyes as he looked at me and as I began to lay out some excuses as to why I wasn't performing the way that I was supposed to perform. And he said this, he searched the Holy Spirit, he searched deep down within him and he said this, no excuses, try harder. No one cares, you just need to make it happen. Very inspirational for, for a 16 year old, right? Very moving, very motivating. Thanks coach, I can tell you thought long and deeply about that and inspiring the team to be able to do that. But see, my coach understood something that I later on in life grew up to understand, is that no matter what it is that I'm gonna do, whether it be compete on an athletic field or, or be in pastoral ministry or just being a Christian and existing in the family in whatever capacity that is, that you don't really get too far in life unless without experiencing some level of opposition, some level of struggle, and so often I used to believe early on as a Christian that if I was gonna follow Jesus, that if I listened to everybody that was talking on the TV and elsewhere, that you might be informed of the notion that following Jesus and making a decision for Christ was somehow gonna make your life a lot easier. But as you start walking with him, you begin to realize that it actually doesn't get a little easier. It actually gets a little bit more difficult. And in fact, when you're walking on mission with God and doing what he's called you to do, you're inevitably gonna experience opposition and suffering. And so in Acts chapter 14, we've got this progression where we've seen Paul experience this suffering and experience these obstacles before him. And, and, and here's the weird thing about it. We see him being obedient to what God has called him to do, yet people are still rising up against him to oppose what it is he's doing. And so I want us to walk through this entire chapter this morning, and we're gonna pick up in verse one, and it says this, Paul, now at Iconium, entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and he spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city in verse four were dividing. Some sided with the Jews and some with 
the apostles. So what happens is Paul is going about living on mission, understanding this basic idea that we've seen throughout the book of Acts, that God sends his people out to be on mission, that there's no peacetime when it comes to the Christian. God gives us purpose and he assigns intentionality. So he puts us in our workplaces, in our homes, on sports teams, wherever it is that we find our, our leisure time, our professional time. God has sent us into those places so that we can make much of his name and, and make much of his kingdom. But even when we're sent on mission, we understand as we, in this case, Paul's evangelizing, he's proclaiming the gospel and these people, in particular, it says in verse two, this unbelieving group of, of Jewish individuals were stirring up the Gentiles, the people that they were trying to speak to. And so this teaches us, by way of application, really our first point today. What Paul is demonstrating here through the word of God that we see is the greater the effectiveness of a ministry, the greater the resistance and opposition. The more effective we are for the kingdom of God and the things of God, often we'll be accompanied by that, a greater sense of opposition and adversaries sort of rise up when you're on mission. Now I say this and make this statement to say the next thing to you is sort of a qualifier. It is true like Paul who was perfectly embodying the, the truth of the message and he was doing it in the way in which God had called him to do. But more often than not, sometimes I see Christians that begin to experience opposition and trials and tribulations in life and they will blame other people or they'll just say, look what God is doing and, I, and this, this adversity has come my way. But in reality, it's how they are going about doing things. And they're running over people in the process. And people that typically are always the victim of, of hard times typically see people as obstacles that they're just trying to get out of the way. And for the Christian, the obligation is much more important and even burdensome because people are not our obstacles in order for us to accomplish what it is that we want. In fact, the people are the very mission that God has sent us here for. And so that's the caution for the Christian is to understand that it's not just what we say to people in the gospel message and getting it right, but it also matters how we go about saying it. And what we see Paul do throughout this chapter is he begins to change his approach throughout now, one of the questions that came up this week as I was studying was I kept asking myself, what is it that allowed Paul to continue to persevere in, in very difficult circumstances? What was it about him in, in his mind and, and in his spiritual makeup and, and in his well-being that he, he just tends to like receive criticism and, and he gets stoned and drug out of cities and, and almost put to death, but he keeps going and he keeps moving forward. What is it about him that, that enables him to do such a thing? And I think in a, in a general level, I think the idea is, is that his ability to, to persevere, his ability to be determined, to, to, to make it through difficult times, it didn't have to do with his willpower. It wasn't about his self-esteem and, and his self-worth. It wasn't his idea that I've got this greatness that resides in me, but rather it was more about the fact that he understood not the greatness within him, but he understood the greatness of his God. 
to propel him to walk through difficult times. And so he navigates it with this truth and this posture of, of dependence upon the Lord. But we keep reading in verse five and we see that when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it. And so they fled to Lystra and to Derbe, cities of Lycania and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. They just kept on going. And so they leave a, a metropolitan city area and they travel about 20 miles south and then another 20, 60 miles southeast and they go off to these little podunk countryside towns that would have had like one stoplight and maybe a Dairy Queen if they're lucky. And his method was, we're gonna engage the city first and then we're gonna move to the countryside. This is what we see over and over in Paul's life. And when I see stuff like that and I see our church, I told Haley this last night, we, we went out on the town and, and we were driving up past Berry Street on 35 and going into downtown Fort Worth. And, and I just said, man, I, I love living in this city with these people. Because you see this city and you see the potential. We're the 13th largest city in the United States of America. We have one of the best economies in the, in the state of Texas, even in the country for that matter, even though we're in the midst of a COVID. Downtown in Magnolia is sort of beginning to come back to life and, and like all the, the strange, weird people that, that come out of nowhere on Magnolia, they're back, they're there. We saw them last night, like, this is great. It feels like Austin in a way, but, but not quite as weird as, as Austin, right? But when you see that, that he, he sort of rests in these, in these places, uh, these, these metropolitan areas, it's a reminder to me as a pastor here, one of your pastors, that we're a church for the city. Like we want the city to know that we're here and that we care for them. And so the things that we do in orienting in, in different directions or ministry focuses or having small groups in homes spread out throughout the city is so that we can have impact and influence on the people that are here. And so we start with the big and then we, we sort of venture out to the small, but, but notice what happens. He eventually gets to this little podunk town and some weird things start to happen. So in verse eight, now at Lystra, there was this man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, he had never walked. So Paul begins to speak and Paul looking intently at him, he sees that he had faith to be made well. Now, just as an aside, this is not that this man had the power to like name it and claim it. Like I'm just gonna believe that I'm gonna be healed and I'm gonna miraculously do this. What he means when, when Luke writes this for us to describe this and Paul's description of this man, he sees in the man his willingness not to heal himself, but rather to allow God if he wills to heal him. And so what happens is he's not saying the English reads a little bit funny, but it wasn't that he had the faith to overcome that, but rather Paul sees that this man was willing to submit and yield to the Lord. And so he says it in this way. And he says in verse 10, said in a loud voice, Paul says to the crippled man, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, it says they lifted up their voice, saying in their language, the gods, the, the little G's, have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And then the priests who were at the temple in this little town in verse 13, they walk out, they see this at the entrance of the city and they bring oxen and garlands to the gates and they wanted to offer sacrifices to Zeus and to Hermes. Now, when we read that, we're meant to sort of be struck by like, this is an odd response 
to Paul preaching the gospel and now they're crediting Zeus and Hermes and you go, well, what in the world is going on? Well, this is where we, we need uh, New Testament scholars to sort of dig in and, and to sort of help us sort of understand. And so um, in, in extra biblical literature, there's a Latin poet named Ovid, O-V-I-D, and he writes a poem about the people that live in this province. And he, he writes the poem to communicate this uh, folklore that existed within the people. And, and here's what the folklore consisted of, and this will help make sense their response. So the folklore, the superstition, was that years ago, the gods descended and, and they were gonna walk with man. And so they go to this region and they're looking for people to host them to invite them into their house, to feed them, to clothe them, and to give them a place to sleep. And so the two gods walk around in the province and nobody lets them in their house. Eventually, they come across these two individuals who bring the gods into their house, clothe them, feed them, and allow them to rest. So the next morning, they wake up, and as a reward for these two individuals that practice hospitality on these two gods, these gods erect these temples, and they put these two men in charge of the temple, basically giving them access to all the, the resources and the money and all the things that would exist there. And then I want you to know this, in the poem, in Latin, he starts to talk about how God rewards those two men and then he sends a severe flood to punish everybody else in the province, to, to kill them, to bring about famine and to hurt them. And so when they see Paul and Barnabas perform this miracle, the connection is they begin to connect the dots to the superstitious folklore that existed in the back of their heads. And this is why you see them give a response where they go, this must be Zeus or Hermes. And we're gonna be hospitable to them, why? Because as the story goes, they were punished with a great flood and famine that came along. But I want you to notice how they respond. So that's the background of it, but look in verse 14. He says, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, it says they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out. Listen to what he says to them. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, but we bring you, get this, good news. And the good news is this, that you need to turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So he begins by telling these men that they are worshiping these functional idols in their life that, that are meaningless things, that have no eternal value, no, no significance. These are, these are dead things that will not reciprocate your worship to them. And he says, you should turn. And the language in the Greek there is, is, is similar to the word repentance that we use. There needs to be repentance as you turn from these little bitty functional saviors that you have in your life and you need to see the one true living God. Which is the good news. Who made the heaven and the earth at the end of verse 15 and the sea and everything that is within it. Everyone in this room here today and everyone who watches online in this moment, every single one of us have our very own functional saviors, our little gods that exist within our life. 
Sometimes they manifest themselves in the form of like of obvious idolatry. We, we worship things to the degree of, of family, homes, cars, possessions, money, wealth, retirement. We, we worship them um, every four years during presidential election cycles and, and oftentimes uh, based on how we communicate, it, it's often portrayed uh, that, that our hope is, is in a man or, or in a party system and, and those kinds of things. We, we do it intuitively. We don't, it's not always just outright. It, it's in the, the longings, the, the idolatry and the functional saviors that exist within our lives more often are portrayed in our emotional responses to things. And what gets us sort of revved up, what gets us angry, what gets us agitated, when do we begin to shift in our seats when the, when the preacher's talking and we're reading through God's word and God begins to confront these functional saviors in, in, our, in our lives and he begins to shed light on them, to expose them so that we will understand that, that we should never come to a place where we're replacing the real savior with these little functional, tiny saviors. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that conversion of a Christian requires that we abandon our functional savior and embrace the real savior. We abandon those things. And we say, we recognize, like Paul says, that, that these are vain, meaningless things. And, and we turn from that and we, we move towards what are the goodness of our God and the Savior and what he has done for us. And so we do that through this place of, of, of repentance. And I wanna, I wanna say this about repentance. It's got sort of a bad word in a lot of churches. You don't talk about repentance if you wanna draw a crowd and, and nobody wants to be shamed and guilted. And that's not what we're doing here. But I, I wanna say this to you. I said this to you before and I wanna say it again about the doctrine of repentance. Anytime you are able to see your sin and repent of it, it is always meant to be a gracious demonstration of God revealing to you the little saviors that exist within your heart. And that is a gracious act of a good and kind, benevolent God to root out the things in your heart that are sort of choking your heart out and your life down. Repentance sort of has a, a bad word because a lot of churches have moved away from, from ever talking about it. Repentance is just simply this action that we do that demonstrates that we have true faith and belief. And if we find ourselves in a position where we're like, I don't need to repent of anything and I don't want to repent of those things. That's more often an indication of not great faith and, and self-sufficiency, but rather it's indication of, of lack of faith and lack of belief and, and great pride that exists within our lives and our hearts. But I want you to notice something really important in what Paul does. I, I've read this, I've read through the book of Acts in my lifetime, maybe 20 or 30 different times. Um, and I've never noticed this until this week. And it's amazing how God's word will speak to us in new ways when we humble ourselves before him. Notice he's still talking to them. He's, he's talked about repentance. And then notice what he does in verse 16. He says, listen, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. Now, what he just does there is, is he's reminding them and speaking to the context of the group because remember, the punishment for them not hosting the gods in the beginning was what? It was a flood. 
And with floods come famine. And so God punishes those that disobey him and he punished them in their context and their understanding was with famine. But notice what Paul does. I think this is brilliant. Instead of warning them, calling them to repent, and instead of saying, listen, turn or burn, baby, he does something that David does in the book of Psalms where David says, it is the kindness and it is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. So notice what he says in the text. He says, listen, for he did good by giving you rains from the heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. He is pointing people in an evangelistic way to the goodness of God. Listen, for something to be good news, people have to often understand the bad news, right? But where some of my reformed brothers just miss it and you, you swing and whiff on this is that you get so inundated with preaching the bad news to people and reminding them of their depravity and you never make the shift at some point where you talk about and you lean into the goodness and the kindness of God. The gospel is good news. As most literally as you can read it in the Bible, it is good news. And Paul does something there for us that I think is so instructional is he's just reminding them of the testimony of the goodness of God in their life. So here's the million dollar question this morning for us as a church. Do we, do you, have a testimony in your life of the goodness of God. And if you do, the challenge this week is that you will, as a testimony to that goodness, you will then therefore go and testify of that goodness and God's faithfulness in your life as a means of evangelizing and as a means of sharing. It's the kindness of God. It's his goodness on display and I think one of the things that, that all of us, me in particular as well, that we all need to grow in and to grow up in is to become more regular in our conversations about how good and how gracious and how merciful and how kind God has been to us. Over the past six months, over the past year, over the past few decades, but notice what it says in verse 18, but even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people and they offered the sacrifices anyway. I read that, it's a reminder, I think, to us all that even when we're on mission, faithfully doing what God has called us to do, people still don't always respond the way we want them to respond. They're gonna reject it. Some will receive it, some will reject it. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, not only do they reject the message, but they tie Paul up, they stone him, and they drag him out of the city hoping he was dead. Like the ultimate, like get wrecked, son. Like it's over for you, right? Thanks for your faithfulness to God. Now we're gonna go kill you and leave you for dead. We're gonna suffer. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered in the city and on the next day, he's alive and he's moving. He goes on with Barnabas, they travel. They make sacrifice. I think this reminds us of a, 
powerful truth in God's word and a testimony and something I need to be reminded of and we need to be reminded of is we're not gonna reach one person in this city without great sacrifice. We won't reach people without sacrificing something for them. It's impossible to reach some with the gospel but not give up our time and our talents and and our resources. He ends the text and he talks about this sort of response that it really is, I think, helpful for us in seeing his method of establishing these churches. And I want you to notice as we close out the chapter in these last few moments, he says this in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, had made many disciples, they returned, strengthening the souls in verse 22 of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we're gonna enter the kingdom of God. So following Christ means I'm gonna take up suffering just like Jesus did. But in verse 23, he says this, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. John Stott, one of my favorite pastors and preachers and theologians says this about this text. He says, when when Paul was planting churches in his missionary journeys, it was absolutely alien and foreign to Paul that any churches were going to be established without a plurality of men, of elders and pastors left behind. It would have been a foreign thought that would have never entered into his mind that just one guy was gonna do it all and bear the whole burden. When we were a student minister here and God called us to the southern part of, of Dallas and over in Ellis County to pastor in Ovilla. We, one of the reasons why we ended up in Ovilla was because there were a plurality of guys, pastors there. We were delighted that God would call us back almost a year ago, but one of the reasons why and the conditions that we came back as God moved is that there were also a plurality of men and pastors here. I was thinking this morning as we regathered just the gratitude that I've had over the past seven, eight months or however long we've been in this pandemic to uh, on a fairly regular basis, every other week on Wednesday nights, I, we would meet with our elders and we would talk. Here's the issues, here's what's going on. Here's how we plan ahead. Here's what we should do. Here's what we shouldn't do. Here's the cautions. Here's the concerns. Here's the go for it. Here's the attaboys. Like coming together as a group, like this is what God intends. And I'm not, I'm not knocking single pastor led churches. God, God uses those men. He used men here to do that. But what an incredibly heavy burden it is to bear that and what a great blessing it is to walk beside other men and women. And so listen, um, I, I wanna say this more often. Um, I'm just the guy that speaks from this pulpit, but, but you should pray, hopefully you pray for me and I'm thankful for that when you tell me that, but you pray for all of, of our elders, that God would give all of them wisdom and get all of them Insight, And I would even go so far as to say, you should pray for our wives too, because what happens nine times out of 10 is that when we're talking and we're like, well, I've talked to my wife about this issue too. And then she says this and we're like, yeah, we need to do what Jamie said. Yeah, Joy's right. We're gonna go ahead and and do this. Yeah, Sandy was correct. This is the direction that, that, that we should go because we value our, our wives and they give great insight and, and wisdom often in the churches supporting us in, in this role but he appoints the elders. And I wanna wrap this up this morning by saying a couple things to us that point back to our our core values and our culture a little bit because I think 
first day back in with small groups, we should be reminded of this on a regular basis. So our mission is to reach people, to see people far from God come to know Christ. Mission's what we do. Vision is what we're trying to become. So mission's what we do. We, everything we do is oriented around this mission that we wanna see people that don't know Jesus come to know him. Our vision is we, we envision a day where we are a sending church, where we're actually having conversations behind closed doors about how we can become a church that plants churches in Fort Worth, Texas, and in the state of Texas, and in the country, how we can be a church that is constantly sending people out to the uttermost parts of the world, to the nations, to the, to the dark places in this world, how we can partner with them and come alongside them, but also just, just send you to the hospitals and to the accounting firms and the law firms and, and the physician offices, that we go out into the banks and, and all of these places with the purpose of making disciples that make disciples. That's a complicated vision that's difficult to do, but, but here's what I'll say. Besides mission and vision, the core values are basically the culture of the church, And oftentimes organizations and churches in particular, they miss the core values and this is what sets the tone for the culture and how we're executing the mission. When we look at Paul's life, we see a couple of things in in this brief passage and elsewhere. Paul was a a man, first and foremost, he, he was committed to truth, was he not? Confronting people, repent, turn from vain things, remember the goodness of God, the good graces of God. And so Paul would say truth, we just simply say, it's being biblically faithful. He just wanted to be biblically faithful to what God called him to do. Um, we say it a different way. Uh, we wanna be biblical over being big. We're okay with being big if the Lord allows and we get bigger. We're, we're fine with that. But our chief concern is not getting big. Our chief concern is being biblical. That we're walking according to this. And as the Lord adds, because he's adding and we're seeing this happen, and, and even in the past like six weeks, like some of you that are watching online, I need you to come back because if you wait too long, you're gonna come back, you will not recognize this place. You will feel like the visitor in six or seven months, I promise. We just wanna be biblically faithful and speak truth and live truth. Paul also, in appointing these elders in this moment, he would say it was about care. We would just simply say in our core values, people are our mission. You're the mission. The person next to you on your right and left, front, behind you, they're the mission. Not the program, not the pulpit, not the class just for the class or the music just for the music. It's because we care for people. And so you're our mission, we, we wanna care. And then the last thing that we see, Paul's establishing these churches in these particular locations that have memberships and people that identified with. He, he wanted them to be in community, what he calls community elsewhere. We just simply say it a different way. We say, listen, circles more than rows. We love that you sit in the pew. I love seeing your faces. I love the fact that most of you have your mask down. I can see your smiles. I can engage that. Um, I can't tell if Cindy Wade is angry, happy, or sad right now. That's okay. She's giggling. But like, I, we need to be able to see that. And as grateful as we are, this is just like step one 
ultimately to getting you into a circle because it's in the circle. That's how we know each other. That's how we know other people. We are known by individuals. This is where we share our struggles and our burdens. This is where we share our hearts. This is where we care for each other because God forbid the the pandemic gets bigger and it gets quicker and we've got to shut things down again. There are things that are out of our control. Lord willing, we never have to do that. But you should know now the value of being cared for in that circle and in that group of people. Because friend, it is, it is no way to live outside of community, outside of the circle, especially when we're in the midst of isolation. And even as the pastor that stands in this pulpit, as much as I value this pulpit in this time, you being connected with other people to share your burdens with you is much more important than, than you coming in here and just sitting and listening to me just, just give a talk. And so we're constantly moving things back and forth. What Paul calls community, we just simply say the circle and, and we want you to get back in that circle as quickly as you can, as safely as you can. You can't love, as Jeffrey said, as he started our service, the great quote, you can't love people in isolation. That's good, that'll preach. I've been married to my wife for a pretty long time and I can't imagine that for 16 years of marriage, we tried to exist on a Zoom call. I can only kiss her and hug her online. Different bedrooms, never able to talk, never able to engage. Can you imagine how terrible that'd be, Cindy? Like having to talk to your spouse just through Zoom. How awful that would be. It wouldn't be much of a marriage, really and truly. It takes the physical interact. God has wired us this way so that we could be together. And so we do that cautiously. We do it with wisdom. We do it with grace and we do it with humility. As I think about the goodness of God in our church over this pandemic, I think about a couple of things, but one in particular thing that comes to mind is our church. Driving past here last night and, and Haley and I just talking, just being out, it's like, we have a great church. You guys are, are kind, you're gracious, you're bearing one another's burdens, you're loving each other, you're engaging each other, you're, you're trying not to, to fall in, that, in that, uh, that, that temptation of like being overly like fearful and, and afraid of all things, but then still trying to, to love each other in different innovative ways and, and engage certain things, like you're caring for each other. And I think the way that you are showing that, many of you, you're, you're testifying to the goodness of God as you care for each other. This was Paul's testimony. Look how good our God is. And then letting it propel and fire our worship into the week. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us and show us grace that you give us guys like Paul who laid it all out to this group of people to let us mirror our pursuit of truth and, and the gospel and integrity, but, but to care for one another, but, but also to be in that fellowship and that community with one another. And I pray that you would just give us greater even insight and innovation and in how to do that better and, and to grow in that. Father, we are a people that we, we need to hear from you each week we want to be changed by you each week in community as we care 
and as we place ourselves under the authority of, of your truth. And so Lord, would, would you help us be faithful to that? Help us be biblical over being big. Help us value being looking like, more like you than, than looking like the world or, or the culture. Lord, would you help us do that? Would you help us sing our song of praise and gratitude and raise our, our hallelujah to you, our, our act of, of worship, our act of yes to your promises? Lord, would you change your people and speak to us this morning? Lovingly, tenderly, would your goodness fill this room kindness lead us to repentance with your head bowed and eyes closed just let me speak these words over you as you listen and think the gospel of Jesus Christ ultimately points us upward to a larger story and the fact that God gave himself up for you right here in this room the gospel of Jesus also requires us to look backwards to the cross, to him shedding the blood and atoning for our sins and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves and paying the penalty and the price for those sins, our failure to live up to his standard. But, but while it points us up to him and back to the cross, maybe perhaps just as important is that the gospel is a message that points us forward as a people into who God wants us to be and what he wants us to look like. So this morning, very simply, I ask you this question. What is it, who is it that God wants you to look like? How does he want you to change? How does he want you to look more like Jesus? Father, would you help us and show us, reveal to us our sin and let us rest in your goodness. And God's people said, stand